Hi, my name is Chris Jensen, and this is My Life, and welcome to it. This is episode 8 of My Life and Welcome to It, and it's episode 5 of Chasing After God. We're into season 2 here. Um, I'm recording this on Friday, October 30th in the afternoon. Um, I want to talk a little bit about last week um, in discussing inner child work and why why I think it's important, why it was important for me. Um, and it all has to do with how we perceive or how I perceived God. Um, growing up, of course, one of the standard prayers that I learn is the Our Father. We address God as Father. And one of the archetypes, Jungian archetypes, is the Father also the mother um, and so the parents um, in, in some way fill that uh, role in the life of the small child of father and mother and um, the child ha could possibly form opinions about what father is and what mother is and can then apply those same types of assumptions to God as Father. And so if there's a wounded relationship between uh, the Father and or the Mother, sometimes both, um, in order for us to have a right relationship with God, then those relationships need to be brought into the light, those human relationships, and healed if possible at least reframed so that we I could no would no longer have to um, rely on my um, perception of father and apply that to God that I could begin to uh, address God as God is in a more neutral fashion and learn about who God is as father and I will even go so far as to say as mother because I don't consider God as being gendered. Um, it's just a convenient form of speech. What I want to talk about today is something that uh, I'm calling Zen Mountains and Zen Rivers. And we'll get to that in a bit. But um, one of the things that Sir Yan Singh was really good at was partnering with other teachers. Um, Sir Yan Singh, if you remember, was my Kundalini yoga teacher um, and friend. He became a good friend of mine also. Well, he, uh, he set up a, a weekend workshop. Um, and it was up in the foothills in the of the Sierras. 
And it was with another fella. And interestingly enough, I remember his name. His name, uh, I don't know if he's still alive or where he's at or anything. I don't know anything about him. But his name was Clifford Straley. Um, and he was going to instruct us in Zen meditation. Uh, and it was going to be a joint workshop of Kundalini Yoga and Zen meditation. And it was my first uh, experience of, of Zen meditation. And, uh, and it was fun. It was a beautiful setting. I'd rented a house or, uh, I don't know, half a dozen of us or, or maybe 10 of us, eight, 10. It was a good, it was a little number, but just enough. And, um, and I remember, uh, when it came time for the Zen piece, um, that we would, uh, we had a cushion that we sat on cross-legged, um, and everyone faced the wall. And I can't remember whether we kept our eyes open or closed. Um, and we just sat there. And uh, we, did what we I mean, the instruction was to watch your breathing. You don't really watch. How can you watch breathing? I mean, that would, that assumes, you know, using your eyes or something, but it's, you know, paying attention to your breath. Um, and that was my first glimpse of it, and I didn't quite understand what it, what it was all about. But it was intriguing. And um, so, as I want to do, I began doing some, some study and some research. And I, I looked in my library a couple of days ago, and I found, I don't know, uh, six, seven books that I have on Zen. And I'll be sharing some of them with you, uh, some readings out of them or some things that I've learned. But I want to go back a little bit and talk about Buddhism in general, uh, give a little history, a little background. So Buddhism actually was born out of Hinduism in India, comes from India. And this fellow, Sakyamuni, Buddha, if I'm pronouncing the name correctly, was a prince. And his parents did not want him to be exposed to the regular world. So he never went outside the palace, ever, ever, never, ever, never. And uh, one day he did. He went outside the palace and he saw people um, in poverty, in illness, and he was appalled. He did not even know that existed right? He'd been sheltered and protected. And so he left the palace and he gave up being a prince. And um, to make a long story short, um, he became an ascetic. Uh, he founded a school of philosophy of Buddhism, um, which became a religion in many areas after, after he died. Um, and, but his main focus was the meditation, that that was the tool by which one was to achieve the various, uh, the various goals, uh, in the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, that it was meditation that would allow a person to, uh, apprehend, as it were, the goal of liberation. 
So it started in India and it, it then went into China. Um, the person who is credited with bringing Buddhism to China is a guy by the name of uh, Bodhidharma. And there's an interesting uh, story. Let me see if I can find it for you real quickly. Okay, so we were fortunate. The book was right on top. It's in a book called Zen Flesh, Zen Bones. You can find this story in a lot of different places. It's very famous. Um, Zen Flesh, Zen Bones was written by Paul Reps. Um, and you can find it probably if you search for it. And uh, Bodhidharma was the, what's called the sixth patriarch of, of Buddhism. And the story goes like this. Uh, he was walking on his own. He's bringing Buddhism to China. And he comes upon this celebration. And he hears two monks. And let me just read what it, Paul Reps wrote. Two monks were arguing about a flag. One said, the flag is moving. The other said, the wind is moving. The sixth patriarch happened to be passing by. He told them, not the wind, not the flag. Mind is moving. And that's an interesting glimpse into what Zen is all about, because that's the purpose of the meditation. You watch your breath, but you also allow the mind to do its thing. And I'll, I'll get into that a little bit later. Um, the Buddhism then crossed into Japan and uh, became Zen Buddhism. And there are many schools. There's two basic schools. Um, uh, in, in Japan. Um, and we'll talk about their differences a little, a little bit, but, uh, the, uh, practice of meditation in China was called Chan, probably mispronounced that wrong. And in Japan, they pronounced it Zen. So, uh, Zen is the practice of the meditation. And the Buddhism part is all of the teachings of the Buddha and the patriarchs that followed um, in explaining Buddhism, uh, the philosophy, and what then became a religion. Uh, one of the things about Buddhism is that it is agnostic um, in its original form. It did not ascribe to any type of gods. Um, it did not even try to make a statement about God, whether God existed or not. And so what happened was, as it would go into these various countries, it was easily absorbed by whatever indigenous religion was being practiced. Uh, you know, we all know about the uh, <clears throat> we all know about the Dalai Lama, uh, and he's a Tibetan Buddhist. And Tibetan Buddhism is actually a combination of Buddhism, uh, which was brought into Tibet, and then the indigenous religion of Tibet, which is the bone religion, um, which had a bunch of gods, which then became incorporated into the Tibetan Buddhism. So it's a, it's a kind of a hybrid Buddhism religion. Um, and so there's a lot of confusion about Buddhism, um, what it is and, and uh, how it's practiced what people believe in 
that sort of thing. It can be very confusing. So in, uh, in following all this, I, of course, you know, read some things about Buddhism and uh, trying to get a, a grasp on, you know, what it's all about. And what's really important in Buddhism is the practice of Zen. Well, I should say Zazen, practice of sitting. And Zazen has sometimes been described as just sitting, meaning that you're not doing anything, you're just sitting. And uh, there are various practices that come with the sitting to focus one's mind, um, and to get one to a, a place of um, enlightenment, let's say. In you've heard it, it's, it's uh, satori in Zen. It's nirvana in Buddhism. Um, I'm going to read a little thing here. I've got a, a book. One, you know, um, as I and I'll talk about this later in a later uh, episode as we get closer to. Um, my reunion with Christianity, um, I began, you know, looking at Christianity and meditation. And I found a book. It's called um, Zen and the Kingdom of Heaven, Reflections on the Tradition of Meditation in Christianity and Zen Buddhism. Very interesting little book. Um, and one, I was you know, looking through it yesterday, and I found this paragraph, and they're talking about the importance of having a teacher. And uh, the author is Tom Chetwind, and he writes this. He says, But regarding solitary practitioners, the fathers in the Egyptian desert advised that if you see someone climbing up the ladder to heaven on his own, pull him back down. By this, the desert fathers seem to have meant that if you go it alone without learning from the old men, you will not know how to learn, and moreover, you will not learn how to teach. And, you know, it's a, it's a little bit more than that, but it's interesting that this came out of the desert fathers of Christianity that were um, late 2nd century, late 2nd century, early 3rd century A.D., um, but the idea of a teacher is paramount in, I would say, all spiritual traditions around the globe. Um, one of the uh, sayings that I came in contact with, and I'm just going to paraphrase it because this is how I remember it, um, is that the recipe for baking a cake isn't the same as the cake. I mean, it's not even the same as baking the cake. You can read a recipe and you can learn all about how to bake a cake, but it's not baking a cake. And so, you know, it's easy to read about various spiritual practices, various spiritual teachings. It's another thing about doing the practices and really understanding the teaching from a lived experience. It's very important that we have that lived experience. Now, we need a teacher because we, as human beings, are very good about deceiving ourselves. It's easy 
to, and I, I mean, I did this with astrology all the time. When I was learning astrology, I would read about various um, interpretations of a astrological event or something. And I would sort of dismiss all of the things that we might label as unacceptable or bad or whatever label you want to give it. And only really look at the good stuff, right? To feel good about myself. A teacher won't allow a student to do that. A teacher will keep the student real. Um, you know, another saying that is prevalent is that when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And I, I've been really fortunate that I've had instructors along the way. Um, I've done a lot of reading, but I've also had human instructors uh, to keep me real. And, you know, sometimes I've pushed against it because it's, uh, it's an ego thing, right? We like to think the best of ourselves. Uh, but if we don't embrace all of ourselves, the parts we've deemed acceptable and unacceptable, then we aren't really being a whole person. So, uh, uh, yeah, I would just say that in all the things I talk about from here to the end of the season, um, I would caution against doing too much by yourself. But when you want to find someone that's, you know, gone before you, it's like, um, you know, if you were to climb a mountain, uh, especially as a beginner, would you just go out and buy all the equipment and launch by yourself and go climb a mountain? Well, you might, but it's not advisable. What's advisable is that you find some a mountain climber, an experienced person that can instruct you on as to how to climb the mountain. Um, people with experience will know, like if you were to climb uh, Mount Everest or um, Half Dome in, in, in here in California, um, there are certain pathways that are have different levels of difficulty. And these instructors, these mountain climbers, know these paths. And as a beginner, if you just go out by yourself, you have no idea what you're doing. You have no idea which way to go. You have no idea which way is more difficult or less difficult based on your skill level. It's the same thing with the spiritual path. When we start off, we don't know what we're doing. We don't know where we're going. We don't know what kind of things we will encounter along the way. Um, and someone who's been doing that practice for a while has a deeper insight and a deeper experience as to the types of experiences that you might encounter along the way. And they can help you, right? Um, so that's very important to remember. So uh, I'm going to go through some of the simple exercises in meditation in general, um, the whole point of Zen meditation is simply to allow one's mind to return, return to what's called its original state, right? Okay. So you sit down, um, you find a place that's comfortable. Uh, you have a cushion, right? That raises your uh, your bottom up off the floor, which makes it easier to sit cross-legged for an extended period of time. 
And it could be anywhere from 20 minutes to 30 minutes. Or if you're an experienced practitioner, it could be 60 minutes of just sitting. And normally what's recommended is that you pick a place and it's the same place every time you practice the meditation. Because what happens then is that you start getting, just like in athletics, you get this muscle memory. And when you sit down in the same place at the same time, your body says, okay, I'm going to meditate. And you can drop into some of the meditative states a little bit easier. The first thing usually you learn is to pay attention to your breath and to count the breath. So it's one in, one out, two in, two out, three in, three out, and so forth, up to say the number 10, then you start over, right? And while you're doing that, uh, you your mind may wander. And if it does, that's no big deal. You simply start over. Just start over counting, right? Another thing that can happen is, is that we start forcing the breath. Um, we try to regulate our breath, right? So that it's a certain length. And that happens. It's not a big deal. Um, but as you uh, practice and become more um, comfortable with doing the meditation, the breath is to relax so that you're breathing naturally. So you're not forcing the breath. You're simply paying attention to it, right? Um, and, you know, there are very, some people is in through the nose, out through the mouth, in through the nose, out through the mouth, out through the nose, rather. Um, and there are breathing exercises. There's a whole school of breath. It's called pranayama. Um, and, you know, maybe we'll talk about that a little bit uh, down the road. Um, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Probably will, because it's kind of interesting um, to just to talk about the ideas behind the breath and and what's going on there. But for Zen, that doesn't matter. You're not worried about various hand mudras, positions, breathing techniques. You're simply sitting and breathing, right? Um, sometimes your eyes are closed. Sometimes your eyes are open. But if they're open, they're not open all the way. I, I've, if you've ever seen a statue of, you know, the Jolly Buddha, the Big Buddha, you know, or if you've seen paintings, if you see some, if you see a person that's in meditation, Look at their eyes, and you'll notice that they're only open up a slit, right? They, they're just, they're, the, the eyelids are completely relaxed, and just the bottom slit is letting some light in. And what that does is it makes it more difficult for the mind to wander. If your eyes are closed all the way, then you can maybe go into daydreaming, um, all kinds of stuff, right? But if the eyes are open a little bit, it's it's harder to daydream. So it allows a person to focus just a little bit easier. The other thing that is is uh, really uh, stressed is one's posture. When you uh, by sitting on the cushion with your legs crossed, it allows the spine to be vertical. 
And basically what, what you're, what you're doing in a lot of body work, people, whether it's, um, uh, oh shoot, what's the, I forget the name of the body work, but anyway, um, it may come to me. It may not, who knows, you know how my mind is. Uh, yeah. Anyway, um, that we're in the most relaxed, supported position possible so that our skeleton structure is aligned and we can relax fully. Got to fully relax. So if you are, if you're slouching or if you're bent forward or if you're leaning back, then your skeletal structure is out of alignment and your muscles are compensating. So what you want to do is you want to uh, let your muscles just be in a, in a very natural position so this, the bones are just supporting each other and the muscles don't have to work. They can relax fully. That's the basic setup, right? There's a lot more to it. And that's what a teacher's for because the teacher will help you find the posture. They'll help you maintain that posture. Um, one of the things in Zen Buddhism is oftentimes the, uh, the teacher will have a little stick. Uh, and if the teacher thinks your mind is wandering or if you're beginning to lose your posture, you'll be tapped with the stick um, just to sort of wake you up and bring you back into alignment, which is fine. I mean, that the whole point of it is, is that it's a practice and it's a practice where we grow and um, and we learn and uh, lots of things can come up around meditation and during meditation and after meditation, right? Because you're allowing the mind to relax, right? Um, I remember, you know, in one of my favorite movies is The Big Lebowski, and there's this one scene um, where this character named Bunny has supposedly been kidnapped, and uh, the dude... Uh, they're supposed to investigate, right? And there's this one scene where uh, he's hustled into the this rich guy's limo, and one of his one of his sayings is, "My mind has been so uptight about this whole thing, right?" And that's med meditation is to help our minds relax. It's one of my favorite movies. If you've never seen it, it's awesome. Anyway, um, allows our minds to relax, and as our minds relax then things that we might have been holding on to, not thinking about, not allowing to come up into consciousness, can can bubble up, so to speak. One of the uh, uh, pictures that is often portrayed of the mind uh, and meditation is a muddy pool. You know, you've got a pool of of water, and and you stir it, and it gets all muddy. And then if you let it sit quietly, all of the mud and, and silt sort of just settles to the bottom, right? And you're left with clear water, which is a type of meditation that the mind is clouded. It's got all these thoughts. Of, it's got, you're thinking about what happened yesterday. We're thinking about what's going to happen tomorrow or even further in the future, past events, what's happening, you know, and so every, the mind is cloudy and cluttered, right? In the Bhagavad Gita, which is a Hindu text from a larger text, 
there's a scene where Arjuna, which is the chariot driver, is driving Krishna around and with the with the horses. And one of the teachings around that scene is that the horses are the five senses, right? And that they just run, they just run. And that those senses need to be disciplined, right? One of them is the mind. Um, and so this the mind needs to find a place of clarity. There's also a picture of the lotus flower. The lotus flower was, was considered a picture of enlightenment in the sense that the lotus root went all the way down into the mud at the bottom. But the, the pad, the lotus pad and the flower rested on top of the water, right? And so what the meditation allows us to do is to rise above. It's to rise above all of that because all that stuff doesn't go away. Just because you've meditated and you've been able to find a place of clarity, all that mud and silt that has gone down to the bottom as, as sediment, it's still there. It's not gone. Yes, the water is clear. Yes, you can see through it. But the mud's still there. Right? And 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 that's what we have to deal with still. So our minds, we may be we may find a place of clarity in our mind. Um, but the mud's still there. And um what happens is is that things that we haven't thought about in a long time, we can begin to see clearly. And we can, you know, that's why we need a teacher. A teacher will help guide us through these moments that can sometimes be difficult. One of my um, stumbling blocks was detachment. One of the things that I was taught and I read about a lot is that we are to learn to be detached from the things around us, right? Um, what are the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism, right? Life is suffering. Suffering comes about by our desires. We uh, relieve that suffering by becoming detached from our desires, right? Well, I confused detachment with denial. So, as we heard in my astrological reading last week, I was, quote-unquote, detached but I really wasn't. I was in denial, right? Things were coming up for me. Feelings, emotions, memories, life, current life situations. Um, and I was being spiritual. I was being detached. But my stomach was telling me, my body was telling me, uh, Chris, you're not paying attention. You're in denial. And that's something that a teacher can help us with, Right? Um, in 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 Christianity, especially Catholicism and or Orthodoxy, and it's even becoming more popular in other spiritual disciplines. There's the idea of the spiritual director. Um, the spiritual director isn't someone who tells you what to do. The spiritual director is someone you can go and talk with, someone you can talk to, someone that you can um, explain what's going on and maybe get some feedback and insight and some suggestions as to how you might want to move forward. Uh, there are some people 
who enter into meditation. And after a while, the teacher will tell them to stop doing it. Just stop. Stop doing it because you're doing more damage than you are good. That there are other things to work on before you get there. So, um, yeah, something to, you know, to, to think about. Um, just the importance of a teacher. So what's the goal of meditation? What's the goal? You know, a lot of people think that uh, meditation is clearing the mind of all thoughts. No, that's not right. Not right at all, because you can't. I mean, it's 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 one. Of, it's like the more you try to the more you try to keep having thoughts, the more thoughts you have. So it's not about that. It's about letting your thoughts pass through your mind, unencumbered. You don't you don't attach yourself to the thought, right? I just remembered that so and so did thus and so to me, and I just remembered that. You can hang on to that, or you can just let it go, right? And that's the process of meditation is as we're being aware of our breathing, as we're totally relaxed, as our mind becomes relaxed, and these thoughts percolate up, we just let them pass through. We just watch them. You know, we don't hang on to them. We don't give them any energy, good, bad, or indifferent. They're just there, and we let them move, right? So that's that's like a meditate, Zen Meditation 101. There's a whole lot more to it. Um, I'm not an authority on Zen Meditation or Buddhism or any of that. Um, so I'm not going to try to be. I'm just going to give you, you know, my impression of it and how I uh, learned and practiced it. Um, and I'm going to share a, a couple more things with you. I've got a whole bunch of little books here um, that I wanted to share. Let's see what we've got here. So there's this fella, um, Roshi. Roshi is a an instructor, a teacher, right? He wrote a book called The Three Pillars of Zen. And um, let's see what, what I marked here. Um, oh, this is where he starts talking about cones. Cones, K-O-A-N-S. Um, and we're going to, so the whole thing about um, the flag is moving, the wind is moving, no, your the mind is moving. It's kind of like a koan. It sort of gets you to the koan. Um, some people are uh, familiar with the sound of one hand clapping. So in this uh, in the Rinzai school of Zen Buddhism, they would use these koans uh, during the meditation. That, but of course, it's not for beginners, because the first thing you have to be able to do is to just maintain that clear, clarity of thought, and so you just start with the breath. Um, but once you've got to a certain point in your meditation practice, then a koan is introduced. And it's something that your mind fixes on. And koans are meant to be unsolvable. What is the sound of one hand clapping, right? I'm going to share another one with you a little bit later on. Um, 
Let me see here. Okay, so let me read a little bit here. Um, this is in the introduction. Um, the introduction, I believe, is written by uh, Roshi Philip Kaplow. Kaplow, I don't... You know, names aren't my forte. So, let me look real quick here at the beginning of the, of the introduction, or at the end of it, or something here, see if it says who wrote it. Um, okay, yeah, he wrote it, so, um, let me just read a couple of paragraphs for you. What then is Zazen, and how is it related to Satori? Remember, Satori is like Nirvana, it's liberation. Dojin taught that Zazen is the gateway to total liberation. In Kaizen Zenji, one of the Japanese Soto patriarchs, had declared that only through Zen sitting is the mind of man illumined. Elsewhere, Dogen wrote that even the Buddha, who was a born sage, sat in Zazen for six years until his supreme enlightenment. And so towering a spiritual figure as Bodhidharma sat for nine years facing the wall. And so have Dogen and all the other patriarchs sat. For with the ordering and immobilizing of feet, legs, hands, arms, trunk, and head in the traditional lotus po posture, with the regulation of the breath, the methodical stilling of the thoughts and unification of the mind through special modes of concentration, with the development of control over the emotions and strengthening of the will, and with the cultivation of a profound silence in the deepest recesses of the mind, in other words, through the practice of Zazen. There are established the optimum preconditions for looking into the heart-mind and discovering there the true nature of existence. That's the goal. That's the goal. The, the, in the philosophy of Buddhism, the thought is that we all have Buddha nature. And part of that is discovering what Buddha nature is. You know, what is Buddha nature? Um, and there's a whole lot written uh, about that. Um, we've got a couple books here. I already shared one, um, Zen and the Kingdom of Heaven. I have another book here written by Thomas Merton, who is a Catholic monk of the Benedictine tradition, um, and it's called Mystics and Zen Masters, and he goes into just a lot of um, mysticism in the East. He talks about uh, Zen Buddhism. Uh, he talks about Taoism, which we're, we will talk about that in the next in a subsequent um, episode. Um, in about Buddhism in general, contemplation, Russian mystics. Um, it, it's very interesting. The Jesuits in China. Um, but uh, 
let me see if I can find a little something here um, where he's talking about Zen Buddhist monasticism. Actually, no, there is some stuff in the beginning that I saw. Yeah. So let's see what he says. Okay, I was looking here for a little something-something to read to y'all. Um, and this is this is under the chapter, Mystics and Zen Masters. And uh, Thomas Merton writes, The Zen insight, as Bodhidharma indicates, consists in a direct grasp of mind, or one's original face, and this direct grasp implies rejection of all conceptual media or methods, so that one arrives at mind by having no mind, in fact, by being mind instead of having it. It is a fully alert and superconscious act of being which transcends time and space. The Zen insight is the awareness of full spiritual reality and therefore the realization of the emptiness of all limited and particularized realities. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty deep. I remember as, as I was reading further into a more Western understanding of, of meditation and consciousness, and the idea of the difference between being conscious of something and conscious yourself. Consciousness and being conscious of something. There is no of. Um, and all of the masters talk about getting to that place um, where there's no of. But as a, as a Catholic, he, he writes a little bit about what, what he's doing here. Um, he, he writes, in writing of Zen, needless to say, it is Zen I am trying to explain, not Catholic dogma. Zen is not theology, and it makes no claim to deal with theological truth in any form whatever. Nor is it an abstract metaphysic. It is, so to speak, a concrete and lived ontology which explains itself not in theoretical propositions, but in acts emerging out of a certain quality of consciousness and of awareness. Only by these acts and by this quality of consciousness can Zen be judged. The paradoxes and seemingly absurd propositions it makes have no point except in relation to an awareness that is unspoken and unspeakable. So, it's a good book, and it's got a lot of goodies in it. Um, yeah, lots of goodies in it. There's a couple of other things I want to leave with you. Um, a couple of sayings, and I'm not going to explain them, but uh, something for you to think about. The first one is this. A, these are both Zen sayings. Before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood carry water. The other saying goes like this. Before you study Zen, mountains are mountains and rivers are rivers. While you are studying Zen, mountains are no longer mountains and rivers are no longer rivers. 
But once you have had enlightenment, mountains are once again mountains, and rivers again rivers. Something to think about. What does that mean? So I was going through another book. It's by Roshi Philip Kaplow. It's called Zen, Merging of East and West. And as I was thumbing through it, I found this really funny, well, to me funny, um, little section here. And uh, it's number 17 in the dialogues. What is the value of a holy mountain? And number 17's title is, Can I Practice Zen and Be a Good Jew or Catholic? Here we go. Questioner. I am a Jew and proud of it. Can I practice Zen and be a good Jew at the same time? Roshi. What were you before you were a Jew? Questioner. I don't know. Roshi. Find out. Then your Jewishness won't be uppermost in your mind. Questioner. How do I find out? Roshi. Question yourself day and night with the yearning to know and the conviction that you can know. Learn to live the way a fish swims or a bird flies, unselfconsciously. Be aware and responsive. In whatever your right hand finds to do, involve also your left. Avoid unnecessary judgments. Be modest and unassuming. Offer your opinion only when it is asked for. Forget your good deeds and confess your bad ones. And never fail to relate every effect to the cause that produced it. Questioner. Can't I do all that as a practicing Jew? Roshi. If you can, fine. If not. And then the next question. Can I practice Zen and be a good Catholic? Now, this is the one that really struck me. Yeah. Roshi. If you practice Zen, you can. But if you practice Zen Buddhism, you can't. Questioner. Why not? Roshi. To practice Zen Buddhism means to transcend yourself. And to transcend yourself means to forget yourself. When that happens, you are neither a good Catholic nor a good Zen Buddhist. Questioner. What am I then? Roshi. Yes. What are you then? So, what are you then? I thought that was interesting. Brings it back into focus. So, as I moved through various uh, religions and spiritual practices, meditation was always an element. And there are some commonalities that I discovered both in reading and in practice. Uh, and so setting this early days of meditation laid a foundation for me adopting various other forms of meditation um, that I'll be discussing, you know, in, uh, in subsequent episodes. So I think that's enough for now. Um, there's some things that I thought about that I may be going, you know, back to, especially discussions around yoga. Um, 
But uh, for now, I, I think we've come to a fine place of completion. So I thank you for this. Uh, this was a little bit more cerebral than it has been. Um, but uh, it was part of my journey. And uh, uh, continued meditation continued to be and still is as it has morphed its way through uh, these various uh, times in my life. So I look forward to chatting with you again soon. Uh, I hope to maybe have another guest before too long um, to share with you. And until we meet again, this is me signing off. My life and welcome to it. Chasing After God is produced by me, Chris Jensen. My technical consultant advisor is David Patterson of Drowning Man Productions. He, along with three others, provide us with an hour's worth of improvisational comedy on their podcast, Wasting All the Time. The artwork for My Life and Welcome to It is by Dave Edwards. And if you're interested in um, his other artwork, you can follow Dave at EvilDaveTM on Instagram. The music for this episode comes from Skywards by Will Van de Cromert. C-R-O-M-M-E-N-R-T. And the platform for the podcast is with Anchor. Um, it's a free uh, service that they offer. And you can find them at anchor.fm. So until next time, be safe, be well, and God bless.